Good morning. Reading from the Word of God from 2 Peter 1, verses 1 through 4. Simon Peter, a board servant and apostle of Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Seeing that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness, though the, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Savior, like a shepherd, lead us this morning. Lead us into green pastures in your word. Equip us to be faithful, to follow our King, our Lord, our God. Lord, may you grant us as we look into Second Peter now a fresh view of who you are and who we are and all that you have done for us. We ask this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen. On March the 9th of last year, a ship was found that had been missing for over 100 years. The ship was the HMS Endurance. The Endurance set out from an island called South Georgia, north of the uh, Antarctica, on December 5th, 1914. The ship was crewed by 27 men under the command of Ernest Shackleton, who set out to lead the first expedition to cross Antarctica, finding the South Pole. There's a story which I think most historians now think is apocryphal. There's a story that Shackleton gathered his crew through a single advertisement in the Times. The advertisement was supposed to have read like this. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. Applied to Ernest Shackleton for Burlington Street, to which supposedly 5,000 men were said to have responded. Now, exactly how Shackleton found his crew is a bit of a historical mystery, but what happened on that voyage isn't. A day's sailing away from their destination on the continent of Antarctica, the ice came in and the endurance became stuck in a pack of ice. The ship's surgeon recorded Shackleton's response. He said that Shackleton did not rage at all or show any outward sign of the slightest disappointment. He told us simply and calmly that we must winter in the pack, explained its dangers and possibilities, 
and never lost his optimism as we prepared for winter. The HMS Endurance was to remain stuck in the ice for the next 10 months until, under the strain of the ice moving and breaking up, the ship itself broke up and sank beneath the Arctic waves only to be found last year in March of 2022. The the stranded crew of the Endurance had to abandon ship and were left with only one choice. They had to take the ship's lifeboats and strike out over the open sea. It took six days of rowing and being pelted with the frigid sea, but all 27 men made it to Elephant Island, which is completely uninhabited, nothing there. Uh, When they came upon the shore, it was the first time they stood upon solid ground in the last 497 days. But they were not yet saved. Shackleton, a faithful leader to the end, asked for five volunteers to go back out to sea with him and brave the remaining 800 miles of open sea to the nearest inhabited island. Both those going and those staying behind prayed that there would be sufficient provisions for what lay ahead. It took Shackleton and those five men 16 days before they finally reached the island, which had the permanent whaling station on it. But because of an oncoming storm, they were thrown off course and landed on the other side of the island. Shackleton made three men take shelter there where they landed, and then with two others, he set out to cross over the mountains and slid down glaciers that no human hand had ever touched before. It took these men 36 hours of hazardous hiking, but they finally stumbled into the outpost, stunning everyone who was there. And under the direction of Shackleton, rescue ships were sent out for those left behind, and eventually the entire crew, all 27 men, were saved. They were saved due, in part, to a man's faithfulness, to a leader who was faithful to the end. We're starting a new series today on Second Peter, which we are calling Faithful to the End. We're asking the question, what does faithfulness look like? What does it look like and where does it come from? Shackleton-like faithfulness isn't just born with you. It isn't a birthright. It doesn't come automatically. It's something that must be cultivated, cultivated in your character. It's something that must be developed. And 2 Peter is written to tell us how. How do we develop a faithful character that will, that will see us through the shipwrecks, through the cold, through the icy places, through the dark seasons of the soul. Peter, for Peter, it all begins with one thing, a new identity. If you're taking notes, that's the first thing I want you to see. If you want to be faithful to the end, you've got to embrace a new identity. Verse 1. Look at verse 1. Simon Peter, a bond slave and apostle of Jesus Christ, 
to those who have received a faith the same kind of, as ours by the righteousness of God, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. For Peter, faithfulness flows out of a new identity. Most of us naturally have a backwards view of identity and how it works. We naturally think that I do these things and therefore I take on this identity. I steal things, therefore I am a thief. Or I take the kids in my minivan to practice, therefore I am a soccer mom. Or Anne plays the piano, therefore she is a musician. Or Stephen eats a lot of cereal, therefore he's a serial killer. We, we naturally think what I do determines who I am. It's what we do that defines us, Katie Holmes said to Batman, right? It's what we do that defines us. Our performance determines our identity. That's what we naturally think. But the Bible very often turns the way we naturally think on its head. Instead of actions determining identity, for the Christian, identity is meant to determine our actions. It's the other way around. New actions are meant to flow from a new identity. That's what's happened to Peter, and we see him talk about it here. Peter has taken on a new identity. Verse 1, I am Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter says, I am a slave of Jesus. I'm an apostle of Christ. His new identity now determines how he navigates the issues of life, not the other way around. For Peter, this new identity wasn't something he earned, was it? It wasn't something he earned. It was something that was given to him. It was given, not because Peter deserved it. More often, it was in spite of what Peter deserved, right? Remember, this is the guy who three times denies Jesus. Most pivotal, crucial moment, I never knew him. I I do not know the man. Peter's identity as a bond slave uh, and an apostle wasn't something he earned, like an athlete earns the honor of being an Olympian. This identity was one that is bestowed, like the love that invites a stranger into the family. An adopting love that transforms the very identity of the person who's loved. You're now part of the family. Take my name. Take my identity. Take my inheritance. You have a new identity. You are a child of God. You are the bride of Christ. You've been wed into the family. Not because of your performance, but because of God's love. Jesus said to Peter, you didn't choose me. I chose you. I gave you a new identity. Whatever you were before, you are now my disciple. You are now my bondservant. You are now my apostle. And this new identity 
will be the source of your faithfulness. When you're shipwrecked and in a dark place, look to your identity. When your outward circumstances are bad, your inward identity becomes the fuel that keeps you going. This, is, this was true for Peter, and the same thing can be true for us. Just like Peter, Jesus also has conveyed upon us this new identity. We are his bondservants, bondslaves. Our lives are not our own. Our bodies are not our own. We've been bought with a price. We don't get to do whatever we want in this life. We don't get to spend our lives pursuing every worldly ambition that we have, climbing every ladder of success that stands before us, because our life has another master, and that master is not me. Our life has a kinder, better master than anything this world could offer us. When we live out our identity as a servant, guess what? We won't act in pride. We won't lord our authority over others or be judgy in our hearts against our fellow servants. We will simply try to be faithful to the master who calls us into his service, to be found doing his work when the master returns. If that's not where you are today in your heart, if that's not where you are, ask yourself, has my heart really bought into and understood this identity of being Christ's servant? If you're living your life for yourself, with no or little reference to Jesus, I think you already know the answer to that question. Your heart needs to buy into this, a new identity. You are a bondservant. You are a slave of Christ. Do you see yourself that way? Your, your life will reflect whether you do or not. But part of being a disciple of Christ and part of faith is growing more and more into a new identity. We are Christ's slave. Real faithfulness is found in buying into this new way of seeing yourself. You are a bondservant of, of Jesus, like Peter. You are an apostle of Jesus, kind of like Peter, but also kind of not. Okay, Let me, yeah, I think you already know the distinction here, right? The Greek word apostle means, just simply means sent one. Peter is Jesus' sent one. People like Peter, James, John are apostles. They are Jesus' sent ones in a special sense. They were there with Jesus in the first century, and Jesus personally appointed them to go and speak on his behalf in a very unique way. For the apostles, their words, their letters, their epistles, like we're reading one right now, carry with them the very authority of Jesus. Jesus' full authority stands behind every word Peter is writing to us. As we read this book, it is though Jesus himself is speaking to us. He is speaking to us through his appointed representative, his apostle. 
In this case, I would call Peter a capital A apostle. He's an apostle with a capital A. We'll see when we get to 2 Peter chapter 3 that Peter knows that apostles like himself, apostles like Paul, are writing the actual words of Scripture with Jesus' full authority behind it. Peter says that people distort the words of Paul just like they do the rest of the Scripture. Peter and Paul know what they're doing. They know the authority of Christ stands behind their words. No one today, no one since Jesus' day, is a capital A apostle. If you run into someone claiming to be a capital A apostle, watch out. You've probably just met the leader of a cult, right? Claiming to have some kind of special revelation. No Christian today is a capital A apostle, but every Christian today is to take on the identity of a lowercase a apostle. We are all sent ones. The great commission we heard last week is given to every follower of Jesus. Go. Go and make disciples. You are being sent out into the world to make more disciples, to make more sent ones. We all are sent to speak for Jesus and about Jesus, whether that means we must cross a culture or cross the street. We are to be Jesus' sent ones in the world, sent to be his hands, sent to be his feet, sent to be the mouth of Christ to the people around us. That's our identity. And if you want to be found faithful to the end, this is a new identity your heart has to embrace. You've got to embrace it. If you struggle here, ask yourself, do I see myself as being sent? Do I see myself as being sent by Jesus? Sent to my family, sent as Jesus' hands in my community, sent as Jesus' mouthpiece to my coworkers or to my classmates? Is that identity even on my radar in the average day? If it's not, well, there's a big part of your problem, right? You haven't bought in to this identity that Jesus has given you. You have to work on your heart until it embraces who you are. You are God's sent one, living on mission. But how do I do that, Pastor? You might ask. How do I work at my heart to get it to embrace a new identity that seems foreign to me? I'm a servant. I'm a sent one. Peter tells us how in verse 2. And it's the second thing I want you to see. Uh, Number one, being faithful to the end means a new identity. Number two, it means a heart-changing knowledge. A heart-changing knowledge. Look at verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Everyone recognizes 
excuse me, everyone recognizes that it's very possible to know true things about God, but that knowledge not touch your heart at all. Just look at Lucifer. Satan knows true things about God, but his heart lives in open defiance of those true things that he knows. Look at Lucifer, or look at your neighbor. Your neighbor knows, hopefully, your neighbor knows that God is the avenger of infidelity and every broken marriage vow made before him. But that knowledge didn't stop your neighbor from cheating on his wife. You can know something, but your heart not be changed at all by the truth that you know. Because knowledge by itself doesn't change us, we can easily be dismissive of knowledge and say, we don't need knowledge, we need feelings, we need the feels, we need passion, we don't need truth, we need sincerity, we need feelings of dependence, we need a sense of God, not truth about God. If you were saying things like that to Peter, an uneducated fisherman, I think he would look at you and laugh in your face, look at you like you were crazy, and tell you, you don't have to choose. We need both. You can't really have one of these without the other. Knowledge without emotion is cold and dead. But emotions without knowledge is blind and misguided. We have to have both. Ask yourself, do you want God's grace to be active in your emotional life? Peter says that grace comes and is multiplied through true knowledge. Grace to the heart comes and is multiplied through knowledge that comes to our mind. Do you want God's peace to reign in your heart? Peter says that peace only comes to the heart through truth first apprehended by the mind. For example, your mind has to know first that God is in control, working all things together for your good, before your mind can call your heart to believe it and for your emotional response to reflect that truth. If I want peace in my heart when the days are dark and the ice flow closes around me, then my mind has to engage my heart with the truth that God is in control. He is on his throne. He's working all things for my good. We need both, don't we? We need to engage both, mind and heart, not just one or the other. It doesn't go well for us when we divorce these two, does it? You might naturally be a more thinky type person, or you might be a more feely type person, but God calls the thinky people to get the knowledge that's up here down to their hearts here. And God calls the feely people to base their feelings, not down here, but upon real knowledge of who he is 
and what he is doing. Because you won't get calm-hearted peace except for heart-changing knowledge. You won't get heart-changing grace divorced from heart-captivating truth. Grace and peace, verse 2, come to you and are multiplied to you through a true knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the second key to a life lived faithfully to the end. Faithfulness flows from a heart changed by the truth, heart-changing knowledge. Here's a third, final point. The final thing we need for faithfulness, according to verses 3 and 4, is a sufficient provision. A sufficient provision. Look at verse 3. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. I have no idea how they did it. I have no idea what all Ernest Shackleton took with him for his 27 men to survive more than a year in the freezing cold, in the long darkness of winter, on lifeboats for days at, on open sea. I have no idea what provisions he needed. I, I don't know what sufficient provisions would look like. But I do know that God has put far more thought than Shackleton ever did into laying in sufficient provisions for our journey, for our life. God knows exactly what we need for the rough seas ahead. And Peter says that he has given us everything we need. Everything we need for life and godliness, God has given us. And notice again, these provisions from God come through true knowledge, verse 3. He's granted us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him. Shackleton's men would not have gotten much help at all, very little help from provisions that they knew nothing about, right? You don't know it's there. You don't know the provisions exist. It's not going to help you. We need to know not only that God has laid in sufficient provisions for us, but we also need a working knowledge of what those provisions are. God has given us many provisions for our journey, but I'm going to quickly highlight three of those provisions in verses 3 and 4. Uh, sufficient provisions, the first provision is this, the call of God. The call of God, verse 3. He's granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. We should not underestimate the powerful provision of God's call. The one who calls us by his own glory and excellence is the same one who called out in the beginning let there be light. And there was light. Galaxies formed 
at his call. Here is the incredible thing about the call of God. God's call has the power to produce what it calls for. That's that's not the same with our call. God's call has the power to produce what it calls for. This one calls for light and the universe explodes with light. He, he call, his call creates light where there was none. This one calls the name of Lazarus. He's dead in the tomb. He calls the name of Lazarus and Lazarus comes forth. His call gives life where there was none. This one calls for the man with a withered hand to stretch out his arm. Where there's no ability to obey, the call itself mends what is broken. The disabled man doesn't have the power in himself to obey the call, stretch out your arm, but the call creates what it calls for. The man acts the miracle. Believer, you have received such a call. Just like Jesus called Mary by name in the garden, Jesus calls your name. He calls you by name. When you didn't know him, when you didn't recognize him, his call turned the lights on in your heart. His call birthed life where there was just spiritual death and apathy. His call gave the ability to stretch out and respond where there was only withered capacity before. The call of God is powerful. How powerful, you ask? Paul put it like this. He said, all those God called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God's call is powerful enough to save, to justify, and is sufficient enough to get us all the way to the end, all the way to glory. So the very first reason in Peter's mind that why you would be faithful to the end is this. You will be faithful to the end because God has called God has called you by his own glory and excellence. That's Peter's first thought. And I pray today (laughs) that might be your first thought as well. God's call. Here's a second thought. Here's a second provision in verse 4. What will make you faithful to the end? Verse 4's answer is this. The promises of God. Verse 3, the call of God. Verse 4, the promises of God. Look at verse 4. For, the, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. If you were stranded on the ice, what would be your daily bread? What would be your daily bread and butter that would keep you going through the long dark of the winter? Those long winter nights. What would be the provision that would keep you going? Peter's answer for the Christian is this. It's the precious promises of God. 
His word, his promises are what keep us going. When I'm worried, I stand upon the promise that God is working all things for the good. When I feel alone, I stand upon the promise that he will never leave me nor forsake me. When I'm wronged, I stand upon the promise that vengeance is his, not mine. He will repay. When I sin, I stand upon the promise that as I confess my sin, he is faithful and just to forgive me of my sin and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. God's promises are like precious provisions in a shipwreck. They can be like food that nourishes you. As long as you haven't forgotten about them, right? You forget about the provisions, they're of no use to you. Don't forget about the promises. Blessed is the man who knows the provision is there, who knows the promise, and who knows how to apply the promise to the need. Like a doctor knows what medicine cures what ailment. We need to know what promise helps with what trouble and temptation. God's promises are sufficient. They are enough to provide us with everything we need for life and godliness. And the promises of God are the gateway to another provision. According to verse 4, look again. For by these he's granted to us his precious promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Here's another provision, a great provision, verse 4. The Spirit of God. The Spirit of God. Through believing the promises, we partake of the divine nature. We partake of God's Spirit. In other words... The life of God comes to live in the soul of man. Here is a help beyond hope, a provision beyond mere sufficiency. This is an abundance. God, the divine, comes to dwell in this earthen vessel. Without the provision of God's Spirit, we're dead, folks. We are dead spiritually. Shackleton and his men would have been dead without some source of warmth. Our faith would have been dead time and time again without the Spirit of God tending the fire. God's Spirit tending the flame of our faith. And God's Spirit acts like a seal for our faith. The Spirit seals us for the day of redemption and he transforms us. More and more as we wait for that day. God has given us all we need. Because God has given us himself. He gave us his son. He gave us his spirit. What more do we need? We don't need more. And yet, he gives We've talked about the call of God, the promises of God, the Spirit of God, but God provides even more. We see here, we don't have time for it, we see here allusions to the kingdom of God. We've escaped from the world, the kingdom of the world, its corruption. Uh, I mean, here, God provides us with the word of God. 
as well. The gospel of God that we have in the word. The people of God around us. This is not an exhaustive list of God's provision. There's one thing after another that we don't have time to talk about this morning. But I want to mention one last one as we close. This morning, you may feel alone. You may feel alone today. It may feel like you're crossing a land of barren ice and that no one has ever crossed before. You may feel like Shackleton. How can you remain faithful to the end when all around you feel so cold and dark? You need to be reminded of one last precious provision. The presence of God. The presence of God. Listen to these words from Ernest Shackleton. He said this. He said, When I look back on those days, I have no doubt that providence guided us. Not only across those snowfields, but also across the storm-white sea that separated Elephant Island from our landing place on South Georgia. I know that during that long and racking march of 36 hours over the unnamed mountains and glaciers of South Georgia, it seemed to me often that we were four, not three. I said nothing to my companions on the point, but afterward, Worsley said to me, Boss, I had a curious feeling on the march that there was another person with us. Crean confessed the same idea. One feels the dearth of human words, the roughness of mortal speech in trying to describe the intangible. But a record of our journey would be incomplete without a reference to a subject very near to our hearts. Christian, there is a fourth man in the fire. There is another person in the wilderness with you. Jesus, the very one who made to you this precious promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you. You can be faithful to the end because I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, may we see and be delighted this morning in all your sufficient provisions that you have laid up for our spiritual journey in this life. Lord, truly, you have given us everything we need for life and godliness. Though we walk across the ice, though it feels like we walk paths that have never been trod before all alone, we are never, never alone. You are with us. Your hand is upon us. You will guide us. May we feel the preciousness of your promises this morning. 
Uh, Perhaps we've long forgotten them, but may we see them again, and may we rejoice that these promises are ours in Christ. Christ is the yes and amen to all the promises of God. May we see your sufficient provision, and may we take on this new identity, one that transforms our hearts. May this be our response to your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.